Welcome to Pitch It, the fintech startups podcast. One founder, one startup, one investor at a time. I'm your host, Todd Anderson, Chief Product Officer, Lended Fintech. On episode 34, I talked with Adriana Saman of Clock Tower Technology Ventures. Clock Tower is the technology investing arm within Clock Tower Group, a global macro investment firm based in Santa Monica, California, and invests worldwide. You know, Latam continues to be one of the hottest fintech markets in the world, and Clock Tower is one of the leading VC firms in that market. You know, so much has changed in recent years with investment rounds continuing to skyrocket, unicorns going public, and crypto beginning to take off. And companies like Nubank, DLocal, and others are public in the U.S. markets. I recently sat down with Adriana to talk about Clock Tower's focus in the region, how the firms managed the region's rapid change, their overall mission of investing in entrepreneurs that help make financial services more impactful, and what's coming next for this rapidly evolving ecosystem. Just a quick programming note that we recorded the interview before Lended Fintech Lab M, in case you might hear reference to that event during the discussion. So without further ado, Adriana Saman of Clock Tower Technology Ventures. I hope you all enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Adriana. How are you? Hi, Todd. I'm great. Thank you for having me today. Well, thank you for joining me. First question, uh, if you could just tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Where have you been professionally before Clock Tower? So give the audience a little bit of a background. So I'm originally from Ecuador. I was born and raised there. Came to the U.S. as an international student to pursue my undergrad at UPenn. I was a political science major and I started my career at J.P. Morgan covering Latin American M&A. I was always very interested in, in the region from an academic and business perspective. And so that felt like the perfect way to kick off my career. I spent a few years there and afterwards, well, not really afterwards, during it, I fell in love with FinTech and really the motor that it, it is for financial inclusion. And so I really wanted to get deeper in the concept of a word back in 2017 that wasn't very known yet especially in Latin America. So try to get into a startup wasn't as easy given my visa situation. So I joined FinTech strategy team at JP Morgan. I was basically doing strategy for the Chase app. So overlooking all of the payment products that consumers use on a daily basis and thinking about roadmap and how to improve our customer experience compared to what FinTechs were doing. And so that was a great eye-opener as to why incumbents are not super great and why Challengers are so much more interesting in different ways. And I figured out what venture capital was in the job and was able to land the opportunity at Clock Tower Ventures three years ago. So I moved from New York to Santa Monica for the gig, and it's been history since. So tell the audience a little bit about Clock Tower, the investment thesis, types of companies that you target. So Clock Tower is a fintech-only VC. We invest in the U.S., in Europe, and now very prominently as well in Latin America. We have a unique mandate where we never lead rounds and we never take voices. So we always co-invest with other leading investors. 
that puts us in a pretty friendly position, both with founders and with other VCs, where we're highly collaborative on both sides of the spectrum. And we're pretty helpful in terms of market understanding, competitive landscapes, syndication, et cetera. So the value prop to our founders and why they take our money is we plug them into a pretty sophisticated network of people in financial services all across the verticals of investing. So insurance, payments, lending, and capital markets, real estate, finance, et cetera. And we're pretty certain that we don't know exactly when or, or how, but they have a call option to a relative that we think will be pretty creative at some point in their journey. And so let it be to concrete partners in capital insurance side, but also just founders are members of our own ecosystem that are highly collaborative amongst each other. So, you know, LATAM, obviously many people who are either listening to this podcast or are in the, the Lendic community realize that, you know, LATAM is, is clearly been exploding on the fintech scene. They have heard of companies like Newbank, DLocal, maybe some of the other unicorns in the market. What does Latin American fintech look like today? Obviously, it's shifted a bunch the last few years. What's the hot segment down there? And give us a bit of an overview on kind of what's happening right now. So I started looking into Latin fintech, as I told you already, 2017. And I remember I would read the Finovista Raider of what are all the companies, all the fintech companies in Latin. And the whole report would have like 50 companies like in total, all across the verticals. They couldn't even write a full description of each because that was it. Yeah. And so if you think about that and fast forward to today, it's an entirely different universe and ecosystem. And so it's extremely exciting to see what it has evolved. I think there's a lot of macro tailwinds that have enabled this transition. Um, back in 2017 or 2018, we didn't have the amount of venture capital interest in the region, which is also fueled by the macro factors that are more obvious now than they were back a few years ago, such as high smartphone penetration, a growing middle class that demands better quality financial services, and most importantly, in fintech, a super concentrated small amount of banks that are highly profitable, serving a very specific segment of the population. So that has rang the bells of all the venture capitalists that want to impose change and challenge the status quo of things down there and to realize that 90% of the population is white space or over equals. So that takes me to your next question around what's hot there. I think that is transitioning. I think historically and to start off, it's been low hanging fruits, right? So consumer credit, providing access to bank accounts, like that itself has been revolutionary. Starting off with some insurance products, but that hasn't been super prominent yet. Very little B2B, right? Now, we're seeing a transition to a lot more vertical software with embedded financial services offerings that are learning a lot about the way it's worked in other places, but also taking advantage of the fact there's very little software in general and very little optimization in the local service offerings in any industry that you can take advantage of by optimizing and then using that information to provide better financial services. So I'm seeing for the first time a bigger approach into the B2B side of things. And I'm seeing a still small but steady increase in true tech appetite and offering. And I think the consumer side of things, it's still white space. It's growing super fast. And it, there's still a lot to do, even though it's been the one that has attracted the most capital so far. I think it'll continue to attract capital in the subsequent years because of the sheer amount of people that can benefit from better tech-enabled financial services. 
So one thing that you mentioned in there, the embedded part, compared to a market like the US, which is obviously very bank driven, there's a lot of fintechs in the US. Fintech has obviously had big success in the US. But the fact that a lot of people are not in the financial system compared to the US, the rails aren't as consistent. It obviously varies country to country. But does the concept of embedded finance that every company can become a fintech, does it succeed or have a better chance of success in an emerging market like LATAM versus a very banked or traditional market like the U.S., for example? Vertical finance can also be very successful in the U.S. It's just a different approach in emerging markets because, yes, you have a very banked system here. You also have a very software-driven system here in things that you would just take for granted, right? The way you accounting, the way you procure products, the way you communicate with people, it's a lot more tech first than it is them. So I think that's a key difference. I think in Latin America, we're leapfrogging parallel multiple things at the same time. So tech is here alongside fintech. And for the first time, you're seeing software offerings to things that have never had software before. And so an example is food procurement. Right now you have Startups are dedicated to help restaurants get better prices and quality of the procurement that they're trying to sell. You're building the optimization engine for that service, and you are the best person to provide a financial service to the client as well, because you have all the data of what they're purchasing, how much you're spending, et cetera. And so if you take this example across verticals, I think we're going to see a more hand-on-hand evolution than we have seen in the U.S., because software has been so late to get them. I think the U.S. had a 1.0 and a 2.0 phase. Mm-hmm. I think LATAM is having a 1.0 phase that is leapfrogging non-embedded financial services version of software. When you did your intro, you mentioned the way that Clocktower invests, as well as you know, with the goal of it being financial inclusion. You know, is there a best entry point into fintech for, say, consumers who've largely been not in the system or left out of the system, left behind, whatever version of the story, is payments the best way in? Credit the best way in? Is there kind of a best way into the system? I don't think there's one single right answer to that. The way I think about it is it's better to segment that consumer and think about what are their needs beyond just being a person, right? So you can think about gig workers, you can think about first-time bank account owners, but not because they have been on bank, because they're teenagers and only starting to enter a financial system. You can think of historically unbanked people who have never been close enough physically to a branch to even consider getting a bank account or don't trust the system and hide money under the mattress, right? So I think there's different personas across the region that have never been serviced well because banks have never tried to serve any kind of person. They've only tried to serve the rich persona that can't afford to get a loan and that is easy to underwrite. And so if you do the segmentation, each of these groups has a different approach that can resonate better with them and can enable a better underwriting for them. I think for Gen Zers and young people, bank accounts are probably the best way in because they're looking for convenience, they're looking to shop online, and shop online requires digital payment, which obviously you get through a debit card or a credit card. And so I think that's a perfect niche there. Historically, underbanked people that are don't have the same resources could probably leverage from secure cards or first-time consumer credit that use alternative data um, to underwrite them and put them into a system. Maybe they don't need a bank account necessarily to purchase. Maybe a bank account doesn't do much for them. Yeah. But getting a credit, getting trust 
and getting into a system is more rent. Gig workers have other problems, right? They need to optimize their salary across platforms. They need to afford working capital to do more gig work. And so servicing them in that cater or the customized matter is also different. And the same applies to all kinds of enterprise, small and big businesses. So I think there isn't one right answer, but there's multiple ways to think about the right way to bring newcomers into financial services. Can fintech deliver on the eventual promise of getting you know, as many people into the system as possible? Or do you also need the banks to become more involved? You don't need the banks to get more involved, but you could definitely benefit from getting the banks more involved. I don't think banks are mean. They've just historically been very heavily regulated. They've never had access to a technology that is not created that was not existing when they started as institutions. Mm-hmm. And they've been operating in a very different world. But they do have a massive balance sheet. They do have a lot of resources and they can definitely grow as well. And the population can benefit from it if it's done more efficiently than it has been in the past. So if interest rates are lower and customer experiences are better. And so I think there's a big space for banks to leverage fintech partners to enhance their distribution, improve their underwriting, and be part of the revolution. I don't think banks are going anywhere anytime soon. And I don't think they need to. I think it's just part of progress. And the market is so big and historically underserved. Newcomers in fintech are just expanding the TAM. No one is necessarily fighting for the same people. You're just adding more people to the international market that has historically been way smaller. One thing I've heard recently from a few Latin American founders, and they've been around in the region for a while now, is that the talent game, so to speak, is a lot higher these days. You know, some of the earlier founders are either on their second ventures or maybe companies that have exited now have people that are kind of going back and starting their own ventures. So the talent equation in LATAM has started to shift. Is that what you're seeing in terms of the investments that you make? And how do you see the talent evolving in the ecosystem today? It's more challenging today to hire an engineer in Mexico or Brazil than it has ever been in the history of the region. And it is a problem for startups to find the right amount of talent. I think it's, I've noticed it's also a problem because there's more appetite for the same talent globally, right? As borders have been removed thanks to COVID, people have noticed that there's this place where there's a lot of very talented people that have historically been silent in other countries and have not seen the opportunities they can have if they don't have to go to Europe. And so, yes, it's very competitive, but I think it's net positive to the region because I think for the first time, you're encouraging more young talent to go on and pursue technical degrees and understand the value of it. And I think that should be part of a broader matrix shift in the region towards service economy. I am very excited to see that, even though it is painful in the short term for local companies that are starting and it's more difficult for them to find talent. Historically, it's been very difficult to start companies in the time because there wasn't a talent. So for the first time getting breakouts of successful stories such as New England Rappi starting their own thing, breeding their own sub-talent and getting more people that are excited about coding and, and more technical. So it's great. How are we handling it? I think there will be some zero salary inflation inevitably in the next years. Hopefully supply catches up. It is an issue, but I also think it's a painful part of what is going to be a much bigger and better outcome. How much has the funding environment changed? I mean, even from an outsider perspective from myself, a few years ago when we started looking at LATAM for a conference and to cover the region, 
you know, most early stage rounds were 1 million, 2 million, 3 million. Now you're seeing 10, 15, 20 million series A rounds, seed rounds that are pretty big. I mean, how has the evolution of funding been and the impact of the large investors on the market? It's been insane. I think in the past year, it's also been a result of an overflow of capital in the US that is looking for other sources of opportunities that I have never considered in the past. And so there are multiple phenomena happening here, aside from Latin in absolute terms being a better place to, to invest. You said it well, a seed investment two years ago was a 500K to a million dollars, and today it's three to five million dollars, and so and so forth in the subsequent rounds. I do think it's important to highlight that money does go a longer way in Latin with currency arbitrage. And so rounds don't necessarily need to be bigger for companies to perform better, or they don't need to be the same size as the U.S. for companies to achieve similar milestones in the U.S. In fact, the average year say company in Latin has roughly 40 employees, which in the U.S. is unthinkable. Yeah. The issue that I see there is people weaponize with capital as a tool in their favor, right? So if you see your competitor raising a lot of money, you will want to catch up with that because you will want to grow as aggressively and fast as they. And so it just totally reshapes the landscape and the expectations for everyone. And even the sensation of who is going to be the winner from the VC perspective, because you want to continue backing those that have consistently attracted capital. So it is an issue, I think. We are adapting accordingly. We haven't stopped investing. We have not shied away higher from rounds that are bigger than they've ever been when we think the outcomes could be bigger than they've ever been, right? So it's a matter of there's more capital now, but you're setting yourself up for better outcomes later. And that could be still very powerful. And, and I don't think it detracts from the attractiveness of opportunities in the region. And are there more clearer paths to exits today than a few years ago? I mean, I was on a session we were doing the other day and two founders like, you know, Five years ago, they always got the question, where are the exits? Where are the exits? Where are the exits? And now that seems to have shifted. Is that the case? Yes. I mean, it's still early and it's still not enough, to be clear. There's still way higher risk here than in other places. But there had never been an IPO this size ever before compared to this. There was VTEX, there's the local. There have been big and meaningful acquisitions all across the region, especially in FinTech. Well, it is not enough. It is a clear trend in the right direction. And it shows that what we're seeing now can yield very amazing results moving forward, given the trends. What are uh, some of the areas within FinTech that you're most excited about? So I personally get very excited about payments and infrastructure. I think payments is the base layer of where all their financial services build on. And the amount of efficiency that that brings to the economy in general and financial services is fundamental. In LATAM, we're trying to invest in every single vertical within the payment chain. And we think infrastructure in general to enable our financial services will be just a very basic part of the building blocks that you'll need for the 2.0 and the 3.0 versions to come. And we're very excited about making investments in that side. But we do everything. I personally like those better, but we are very open to all the verticals of fintech. And we've actually done business, I think, in most verticals at this point. In the region. Any thoughts on crypto and kind of the entrance of crypto in the region and what it potentially could mean? We personally are not crypto investors, not for any 
bad reason other than we're not experts, just to be clear. My personal opinion is crypto at the consumer level will play a very big role when it comes to providing for the first time access to consumers to holding stable currencies instead of having to enter relativity with global groups. So I think the USDC stablecoin offering is very compelling. I still worry about the regulatory hurdles or challenges they will have to overcome until this can become a widespread offering. But I would imagine we can get there because regulators in time, I think, are more open to innovation than close to it. And so we'll get there. I do see a value in that sort of offering. I'm not sure that it will replace entire infrastructure as we see it because it's so far behind in so many things. And the amount of work that has been done in improving infrastructure, I don't think will just be raised by blockchain. It can enhance other services that have not been touched yet. But I think it'll be a very nice combination of both. I think that dynamic that you just mentioned, it's you know, you're building all this infrastructure and improving this infrastructure. There's a very little chance that you've done all this work and all of a sudden it's just going to be erased and changed with a new infrastructure like blockchain. I mean, it seems that when you mentioned the infrastructure part before, that all this work going into infrastructure, you know, just to then wholesale switch over to blockchain would be, you know, kind of not likely, but do the founders that are doing some of the infrastructure work, is there any, I guess, nervousness or does it keep them up at night that, hey, we're building this layer, but then they're this layer could be wiped out eventually? It's not like it'll get wiped out, right? It's about who wants to use this X or Y layer in what kind of way. And infrastructure in FinTech is in big part getting licenses approved. And that takes a lot of time. And that is the only way you don't get shut down. And so players like Kushu, Glow66, that have spent a decent amount of years making sure they are building end-to-end integrations that are compliant in every country they operate, won't just fade away overnight, unless one day the government decides that no, that doesn't matter. It's not like it's literally the physical thing that you're building. It's the whole, the holistic view of what it entails to provide a service in financial services has a big component in regulatory compliance. And that takes way longer to change than tech itself. So by virtue of that, building those modes, I think it's still a very durable way to build a business. And I don't think that will disappear away. What's the best piece of advice that you've received, either from a, a fellow investor or, or founder, you know, since you've been focused on the region? Well, not in the region, but generally. Take the intro. If they ever offer an intro and doesn't seem that interesting, take it. And this applies to founders and other investors. I'm very glad someone told me that when I started my career, because the amount of unexpected surprises I've had by taking intros has been pretty amazing. And I try to give back by making a lot of interest and connecting people in ways that I think will be very pretty for them. I wanted to shift a little bit in terms of the investment process and what's happened over the last couple of years. I mean, how has that dynamic been? Are you making investments through Zoom? Is it back to more of a traditional in-person? Have you ever made investments through Zoom? Yes, we have made a lot of investments through Zoom. In fact, the majority of our Latin investments have been over Zoom. We started our Latin dedicated vehicle in Q1 of this year, and most of this year we still have not done a lot of work travel. When we started doing that in the US in early 2020, it felt like a massive paradigm shift that we were not comfortable with. But after a few months, we realized it was very big value in the relationships we had built before COVID and the people that we could rely on over Zoom 
to triage on new opportunities we're looking at and to see more opportunities without having to go to conferences or go to cities to meet people in person. So it was a very pleasant surprise to see the depth and the value of the relationship we've built. And that was the core asset for us to build comfort around investing over Zoom. In Latin, I think it's the same thing. Borders are blurred. And while I have been in the region a number of times this year, that has by no means been the reason why we've been able to do so many investments. And it has not prevented us from building durable relationships all over the If someone, a founder, was listening to this, what advice would you give to them if they were just going out for their first capital raise from outside investors? I think a key advice is know your numbers and your industry cold. It's unacceptable for you to make a mistake, I think, in what you're thinking you're projecting or what you're doing, what your economics are, any terms of the industry you're looking at, especially in finance or insurance, it's so regulated and so specific. Very important to show that you have a very deep understanding of what you're building. I think also show a lot of passion and grit. Most people will say no, and that's how this works. And I don't think it's because VCs are mean. I think it's because VCs have limited resources and can't do all the investments that they want to. And so keep that in mind when you are pitching and don't be afraid to keep trying and keep getting as many conversations as you can until you get to the yes. So we have just a, a couple of minutes left. I'd like to end with a little bit of fun. So do you have a favorite book and the last book that you read? Yeah, my favorite book is a novel called The Shadow of the Wind. The last book I read is Thinking in Bets, which is really relevant when you're investing in an early stage company. <laughs> do you uh, have a favorite sport or sports teams that you root for? My favorite sports team is Barcelona from Ecuador. In case you didn't know, fun fact, we have a local team called Barcelona Sporting Club. <laughs> and my favorite sport is beach volleyball that I play. It's amazing. Almost every person on this podcast, nobody watches like a typical sport or is, is classifies it as their favorite, like soccer <laughs> or American football or baseball. I had water polo. Beach volleyball, underwater hockey, someone said. I didn't know even was a thing. So it's interesting what founders and investors find, <laughs> I guess. You interview uh, special people. There that's you why. go. That's, that, that's the whole reason. And then final question, biggest inspiration in life? People who are not afraid to speak up and pursue their passions. Well, that's a, a perfect way to end. Uh, Adriana, thank you very much for thank coming you, on Doug. the show. How can people find Clock Tower, find you? You can visit our website and we have like a little text thing where we actually do read all the messages on clocktoweradventures.com. And you can also ping me on LinkedIn on my profile. I'm not on Twitter, weirdly enough, but such is life. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate the time today. Look forward to seeing you uh, next week at our LATAM event. Enjoy your weekend and hopefully we'll thank get you, you back God. sometime in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Pitch It, the fintech startups podcast. I encourage you to take a few minutes to write a review or rate the episode. Ratings and reviews both help us to improve the show for future episodes. If you're interested in learning more or would like to be considered for a future episode, please reach out anytime to Todd, T-O-D-D, at lendit.com. And until next time.